All right, now you can have a seat and let me bore you. I was kidding. That was fun, wasn't it? And, uh, and one of the things I want to start with, 1 Peter 4, you're going to turn there. The reality is, come on back, it's okay. <laughs> the, the reality is, when you know how it ends, it makes it a whole lot easier to go through, doesn't it? When you know how it ends, it's easier to watch a stressful movie. When you know who wins, when you know the bad guy's going to get it in the end, then we don't have those moments where it's like, I don't know what's going to happen next. You mean, you have little bits, little bits, but you have this confidence, this hope. And what we just sang about is how it ends and why it ends the way it does. Because what has happened for those who are in Jesus Christ, and if that's not you, then my uh, goodness, if you're here, now is your chance. (laughs) Jesus Christ came to save you, not because you were lovable and savable. He came to save you because you were desperate and lost. Jesus Christ came and willingly took your place on the cross having those nails driven through his hands and his feet. He was lifted up and mocked even more than he had been the days before that. People looked at him hanging on the cross and thought, this right there, that's the Son of God. He willingly endured the humiliation of the cross to rescue you. What are you going to do with Jesus? Every time somebody talks about Jesus, every time you sing songs like that about being washed in the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ, if you are not washed in the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ, you are coming face to face with a decision you need to make right now. Accept, reject. Those are the only two options. Wait equals reject. You know that, right? What are you going to do with Jesus? See, that's why we have hope. And that's, that's the foundation, the, the, the springboard on which we, we take off this morning, is knowing and loving Jesus Christ because he died for us and came to rescue us. And it brings us to 1 Peter chapter 4, um, starting in verse 7. Read, read along with me. He says this, the end of all things is near. Oh, it's going to be an uplifting message this morning. The end of all things is near, therefore... Be alert, sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. You got to start with the ending. You got to understand where this goes. A good, not maybe saying that's saying it the wrong way, not a good novelist. Many good novelists start with the ending first. You know that, right? So, so uh, Agatha Christie, you ever heard of her? wrote all kinds of suspense novels. Not all of her novels, but many of her novels, she started by writing the last chapter first. Uh, Margaret Mitchell. She's the author of Gone with the Wind. She wrote the ending of Gone with the Wind before she even started the beginning. J.K. Rowling, the first chapter J.K. Rowling wrote in the Harry Potter series was the last chapter of the last book. Because what the novelist knows the process, to get into that process, in order to write that, that good novel, in order to get into the train of thought, you've got to know where you're going. 
So with that in mind, we, we look here at verse 11, the very end of it. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. See, that's where we're going. That's our goal. That's our purpose. Not just as a church, but as a people. To bring God the glory that only he deserves. That, that's what 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, is that therefore, whether we are at home or we're away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. Our entire goal, our entire life is wrapped up in making much of God and in, in, in giving him the glory that only he deserves, in putting a smile on God's face. That's our goal. That's what we're driving to. Peter says the time to do that is short. The end of all things is near is how he begins verse 7. So what does he mean when he says the end of all things is near? He means this. You're going to see Jesus sooner than you realize. That could be for a number of reasons. It could be death. It could be the return of Christ. It could be the end of the world. I mean, if you watch the news, it's certainly the end of the world. But regardless of what's going to bring it, you are going to see Jesus soon. The end of all things is near. When you begin to contemplate the end of all things, how do you respond? Well, there's three typical responses. The three typical responses to contemplating that the end of all things, eschatology is the theological word for it, the study of end times, the three basic responses to eschatology is, first of all, you freak out. Secondly, you do nothing and pretend like it's not actually happening. Or third, you create a whole mess of charts and timelines naming the Antichrist and defining when Jesus is going to come back. Um eschatology, the study of end times, is never supposed to lead you to date setting. We'll talk about that at the end here. What it's supposed to do, knowing that at any time Jesus is going to return, is supposed to motivate you to live your life for him and only him. That's what he says. The end of all things is near. Therefore, because the end of all things is near because you're going to see Jesus sooner than you realize. Therefore, bang, be alert and sober-minded. Live with self-control. Be alert. That means sound judgment, earnestness, especially in the middle of difficult situations. That means to, to live with a, a steady hand even when everything around you is turning to trash. Psalm 73 talks about that. As the psalmist begins speaking, he says, as I looked around... All the, the negative people, all the sinners, they were prospering. Everything they touched turned to gold. Everything I touched turned to trash. It was horrible. It was terrible. The only thing good I had was, was sleep. But when I would wake up, new pain. That's the definition of getting older, by the way. You start hurting yourself when you sleep. Psalmist was obviously experiencing that and saying, everywhere I looked, the good were being persecuted, the bad were being elevated, they were being looked at as the ones to be admired, and God's ways had been just turned aside from, and everything was just going crazy. And I was afraid to speak and share my concerns because I would affect the faith of younger believers around me. Until, verse 16 of Psalm 73, until... When I tried to understand all of these things, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then 
I understood their destiny. What the psalmist said is all of a sudden I needed to take that deep breath to refocus, to recalibrate, and to get a fuller picture, a fuller understanding of what was happening. And when I, when I know the end of all things is near, I refocus, and this turns to that steady hand in the middle of life turning into trash. Because in the middle of refocusing and seeing God for who he is, I stop focusing on what they have, and I start focusing on who I have. Self-control in the middle of absolute chaos doesn't come from a feeling. I think we misunderstand the term peace in Christianese. Peace isn't this settled feeling of calm where nothing shakes you. Peace is knowing who is, who is carrying you. Peace is remembering that everything I think, I say, and do is supposed to bring glory to God. Peace is from remembering that the time is short. Peace is remembering, as the psalmist did, that the point isn't about what they have, it's about who I have, and it takes a little time to get there. It takes practice to live in peace, to live in alertness, to live with self-control. We had one of our children, um, who will remain nameless, because I didn't ask them if I could use this as an example, so... One of our children was absolutely terrified of any animal. Any animal. Any animal. So when they were a little one toddling around, you know, and you're trying to hold their hand, and a bunny rabbit would show up, it was like crawl up one side, gouging into your face, trying to get as high off the ground as they could because it was the evil bunny rabbit. Now, to be fair, that probably had a lot to do with the fact that every time I saw a bunny rabbit, I'd be like, it's going to get you. Um, <laughs> but it was every animal. It wasn't just bunnies. It was birds. It was cats. It was dogs. It was, <clears throat> it was everything. And they would climb up and cling on. And it was, it was almost like they would wrap their hands, because it wasn't almost, it was. They would wrap their hands and legs around your face and neck. So it's like, can't even see. And it's like, kid, remember, last time this happened, I carried you, I took care of you, I held you. And that's just a puny little bunny rabbit, in my opinion. I know to you it seems like something huge, but what you got to remember is I carried you, I'm holding you, I'm not going to let that evil bunny rabbit get you. And we're the same. He's got us. He's holding us. He's not going to let the puny problems, although they seem large to us, to him, they are simply tiny. He's not going to let them get to us. So live with some self-control. Live with sobriety, which means to be free from every form of mental and spiritual confusion that's brought about by external sources. Don't allow external voices to influence you. He says, live with sobriety. That means do not allow outside people, outside situations to intoxicate you. Be sober-minded. So you can be controlled by a lot of different people, can't you? Could be a pastor. Could be a radio station. A specific teacher, an author, a news source, a book. It could be all of those different things that are controlling you, and insincerity. It could be somebody that just has an opposing viewpoint than you. 
and annoyance. They, they may even be persecuting you, but, but you are only focused on them, and so you're off your game. You're, you're living as if you are drunk because you are being controlled by them. There's only to be one influencing factor in your life, and actually, I mentioned the word drunk because it's a very popular verse that to, to refer to the use of alcohol. However, what you need to understand as we look at this popular verse, alcohol isn't the point, it's the picture. It says this in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. In that verse, yes, you can apply the principle, do not become intoxicated by alcohol. However, the, that's just an illustration that Paul is using about what is supposed to control you. Do not allow any external source to control you. Because when external sources step in and begin to control you, you begin to live in a way that is, is, is called reckless. It's to live, and you actually translate that word out, to live as if your mind is not engaged. When you are around people who are intoxicated with alcohol, you understand that phrase, to live as if your mind is not engaged. He says, don't allow any other influence in your life to do that to you. The only influence that is supposed to be in your life, you are to be directed, influenced, and governed only by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit is in you, he testifies to the truth of Jesus Christ. And he will remind you that, yes, the end of all things is near, but that's not something to lose your mind over. That's not something that you should be lazy about. But it's something to look forward to with eager anticipation. The end of all things is near. Be alert, be sober-minded. Then he says, love well. Verse 8, above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. To love another person, to love anybody, gets very difficult, particularly when you're going through trials and difficulties. Because the, the... the natural flesh in us allows ourselves in the times of difficulty to get so self-absorbed, to be so focused and myopic on the things right here around me, we stop looking at other people. We end up running other people over and we find it acceptable because I'm going through a difficult time. Peter says, do not allow your love to grow cold. Love well. Your love should not stop overflowing Maintain constant love. The word Peter uses here is the word that is used in other literature, Greek literature of the day, to talk about a horse that is racing. And it's running with everything it's got. It's using all of its energy, and it just keeps going and going. And you've seen horses run, and you see that, I mean, it's majestic to watch, but then you just look at the, the, the muscles in the back and the legs. And that, I mean, that thing is just reaching with everything it's got, and nothing's going to get in its way. That's what it means to maintain constant love, love like that. It's used of athletes who are running the race, getting to the finish line, and they turn on that, that last bit of jets that they may have. They use the last... Um, uh, gas tank, if you will, and they're going as hard as they can, and they begin to just turn it up another notch, and they're stretching as hard as they can. That's what it means to love constantly. Uh, I had a um, in staff meeting this week. We we go over our passage for devotions together. As we were talking through it, one of the staff members brought up this term called um, tactical reserve. It's a new term to me, so I did a little reading on it. It's fascinating. I think it really pictures it well. So let me let me illustrate what it looks like to love constantly to love to the point of exhaustion to the love to the point of just extending yourself or overextending yourself you ready so what i want you to do everybody right where you are reach up as high as you can 
Reach with that hand. All right, you ready? Now reach higher than that. You all could, couldn't you? Why do we do that? I don't understand why we do that. Like, reach as high as you can. Oh, well, reach higher. Okay. Well, I said reach as high as you could the first time. The idea of tactical reserve is in us. We just go, we'll go this far. I got a little more, but you know what? That's only for emergencies. Peter says, love without tactical reserve. Hold nothing back. Who are we supposed to love? Family, church family, friends, coworkers, neighbors. I mean, there's, the list goes on and on, but it also includes those who hold different political views. <gasps> Wait, you think that one got you? Those who hold different theological views. Oh, man, we're in trouble now. Now he's going to tell us we're just supposed to get along with everybody. No, I'm going to tell you that you are supposed to put the good of other people before your own. He's not telling you to develop feelings for someone. He's telling you, to put the good of others first, even when you find it difficult. He says to love them with no tactical reserve. And one of the ways that love um, applies itself is through forgiveness. Love covers a multitude of sin, he says. In our relationship, offenses are going to happen. But, but when we love each other and we know time is short, we'll relate to each other with a flood of grace and forgiveness because we don't have time to hold grudges. We don't have time to hold on to petty disagreements. We don't have time to use the silent treatment against other people. We don't have time to hold on to the hurts. That's what he was talking about with sobriety. Don't allow the offenses, the hurts, the sin that has been done to you to become the thing that controls you because the end of all things is near. You ain't got time for that doesn't mean you overlook or downplay or ignore hurt or sin, but it means you forgive it the correct way. It means you confront it head on and you make the choice to forgive. You make the choice to forgive to the point of who do you need to forgive like that? Who do you need to love like that? Who is it that you're harboring and holding on to that bitterness. The end of all things is near. You don't have time for that. That love that extends itself, overextends itself, loves to the point of exhaustion, the love without tactical reserve, not only demonstrates itself in forgiveness, but it also demonstrates itself in this humble hospitality. He says this in verse 8, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Hospitality is this, this compound word. It's phileo and xenos, which, which we put the two words together and it says you love the stranger. It's the bro brotherly love of a stranger, treating a stranger as if they were your brother or sister. So showing hospitality to each other is, is using your resources to the benefit of others and to the glory of God. Loving with, with no tactical reserve being applied in the area of hospitality is viewing others, even strangers, the way Jesus viewed them. We, we know that he viewed them differently than the, the world viewed them. 
In fact, Jesus refused to relate to people the way the world did. You, you see that in his ministry. He sits with the Samaritan woman at the well. He uh, invites himself to dinner at the tax collector's house. He's called the friend of sinners. Friends, that, that, that is hospitality. And that's so very different than the world's approach because the world sees people, particularly strangers, through a transactional lens. I'm going to treat you in a way that lines up with what I get out of you. But Jesus saw these relationships through a value lens. I'm going to treat you as if you are valuable because you have been created in the image of God and you need what I bring. I can serve you. So I think too often we hear the word hospitality and we think, we, we think it's the guys having the guys over for UFC fight night or the, the, have all the ladies over and have a, have a game board night or something. No, no. It's we share our lives with people who seemingly bring nothing to the table. That's what hospitality is. Why? Why would he do that? Because the end of all things is near. Now, just to make sure you understand this isn't easy, Peter makes it clear it's not easy. What does he say about hospitality? He says, what I want you to do is be hospitable to one another without complaining. God doesn't waste words. If God had Peter put in his word without complaining, that means our natural tendency is to complain about having to be hospitable. And it makes sense why it would be difficult and why we would complain because it's, it's a constant focus on other people instead of being focused on ourselves, and we are incredibly self-centered. So it is difficult, but regardless of how difficult it is, we're called to love well because the end of all things is near. Verse 10, he tells us to serve well. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve other people as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides. So so we're told to serve well. He's speaking specifically of the gifts that are given to each and every believer as they come to faith in Jesus Christ, as they're baptized into the body of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, they are given a gift by God. And that gift that has been given to you is to be used to serve other people. Whatever gifts you've been given, they're given in the context of serving other people. And Peter says, you are to steward these things well. A steward was a, a house manager who, he didn't have any wealth of his own, he didn't have any possessions of his own, but uh, the, the master of the, the house would give to the house manager, and the house manager would distribute the master's wealth and possessions according to the desires and will of the master, according to the direction uh, of the master. And that's exactly what these gifts are for you. God has given you a gift, and he says, steward it well. I've called you to something. So how has God gifted you? Do you even know? Let me me encourage you to explore that if you don't. But if you do know, are you using it? Are you serving other people well? Are you using it even to the point of full extension, full exhaustion to love other people well? Or are you sitting on your hands? I believe that what Peter is speaking into here is a group of people who have been going through such difficult times that they've been lulled to sleep because they're out of their normal rhythm. Does that sound familiar to anyone? 
this is not a political statement, this is reality. There is no new normal. There's never been a normal. What you are called to in this present moment is to love others now, not like you would have eight months ago. Serve other people now, not like you would have eight months ago. Hey, and I get it, and this doesn't apply to you guys a whole lot because you're here, so I am thanking God you're here. It applies more to people who are like, you know, I really like my Sundays now. I never realized how much freedom I had on Sundays. So now I can just roll out of bed, my PJs, my coffee, watch an hour-long service while I'm doing other things around the house and just go about my day. Sound familiar? None of you have ever been tempted to do that. I know that's a lie because I've been tempted to do that, but you would notice. God has called us to love to the point of overextension and exhaustion, holding nothing back. He has called us to be hospitable. He has called us to serve well. Why in the world would we take everything we have to pour into other people? You start at the ending. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever Amen. And then you go a phrase just before that. I do all of these things. Why? So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. Why would I do this? Because we want to bring glory to God in everything we do. And as Peter is telling us, time is short. And you're only going to commit yourself to this, this difficult lifestyle, this different kind of lifestyle, if you keep that in mind. That you want to bring glory to God and the time is short. The time is short. What are you waiting for? Reminds me of a question. If you want to turn there, I'd encourage you to. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to point something out to you. that there, there is a moment. There's a lot of moments that are happening in the previous 40 days up to this point in Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> the disciples, the ladies... Uh, the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, there's a whole list of witnesses in 1 Corinthians 15. They all get to see the fact and handle the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. They put him in the tomb. The, the stone was rolled away. He is alive. And now they're gathered together in this room. Uh, and he starts, Jesus begins to speak to them. You get to verse 6 of Acts chapter 1. And like any good disciple, they ask a stupid question. So, uh... Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel now? So what you need to do is read into that, the, the reality that's happening in the hearts and lives of the disciples. Is this the time that we're going to be heroes? Is this it? Where you wipe out the Romans and now all of a sudden we are elevated to these positions of, of second in authority? We get to be, your kingdom is here, all these things get to happen. And Jesus says, it is not for you to know the when. Stop asking about the when. I have a gift for you, and I have a job for you. The gift, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The gift is this. He has given you power. Not like this um, incredible Hulk moment where your, your clothes tear, you turn green, you start to preach like Piper. It's not like that, okay? It's this picture of a Holy Spirit coming and doing the work of making much of Jesus through weak men and women. You, you see, as you read through the book of Acts, you've got Peter, who was the greatest denier of Jesus Christ, right? 
denied Christ three times, becomes this preacher, and thousands of people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. You see it in the life of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. As he stands before his accusers and preaches with boldness and courage as he is being put to death. You see the power uh, as the gospel spreads to the Gentiles. You see the, the power uh, as a murderer named Saul becomes the greatest missionary the church has ever seen. See, the power of the Holy Spirit is when he does the work of Jesus Christ through weak men and women. And boy, did these fellas need some power. I mean, you got to think about it. These guys have, are about to be called to a job that is absolutely huge. The, the gift is the power. The job, the task that you're being assigned is to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ around the world. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. They have been called to this daunting, impossible job. And they are not exactly what you would call superstars. These are the fellows who swore they would never abandon Jesus Christ. And at the moment that the crowd showed up to arrest Jesus, they disappeared into thin air. That's what God does. He calls us to something that is beyond us. He calls ordinary people to extraordinary tasks so that when that task gets accomplished, the only one who can get the praise and the glory is God himself. So that was a sermon within a sermon. You're welcome. So let me keep going. They've been with the risen Jesus Christ. They've asked their dumb question. They've been promised power. They've been given a job. And then, verse 9, after he said this, Jesus, after Jesus said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. I mean, so Jesus says these things, and then, a whoosh! Jesus is gone. And verse 10, while he was going... They're gazing into heaven. You get the picture that this gazing into heaven as you read the rest of verse 10. It wasn't just this, whoa, that was crazy. Did you see that? No, 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 no. What happened was Jesus said, and you're going to be my witnesses to the whole world. Whoosh! And the disciples are like. That seem awkward at all to you guys? That's the point. Who knows how long they looked? We don't know. Think. And as they're gazing, it says at some point two angels dressed in white show up next to them and they're like, <clears throat> guys, listen to the question the angels asked. Verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. The angel says, why are you still here? He gave you the power. He's called you to the job. Why are you still here? 
This same Jesus who went, you know how he went, right? There, not there. There, not there, right? There, not gone, okay? That same Jesus is going to return the same way. Not here, here. Why are you still standing here? Time is short. What are you waiting for? Uniontown Bible Church, time is short. You have been called to live differently. You've been called to live with self-control, with sobriety. You've been called to love others to the point of exhaustion. You've been called to share your life with people who bring little to no reward for you. You've been called to serve others with all that you have, all that you've been given. Time is short. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Father, forgive us for missing the opportunities you've placed right before us to be obedient, to depend on the power that you have given to us to follow through on the tasks. Father, forgive us for being more concerned about temporal things instead of eternal things. God, we will never live differently until we we begin to understand that you indeed are going to come back soon. Father, I ask that we would be busy about the tasks you've called us to, not the least of which is living for other people. God, you've called us to be your light, to be your salt, and God, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid we've lost our saltiness. We've lost our brightness because we're so consumed with other things. So, Lord, would you rescue us from ourselves? Would you fix our eyes on the truth that you are coming back soon? Father, I pray we would be willing to give you everything we have. When we find ourselves starting to hold back, I pray, Father, we would extend further. When we find ourselves beginning to be so self-absorbed, that we're overlooking other people, I pray that our eyes would be opened, that we would see the other people as you see them, souls who need to be loved, who need to be pointed to Christ. Father, I ask that the folks who are in this room right now would take everything they have, every resource, every amount of energy, every relationship, and use them to serve you. I pray, Father, we would get off this hill in such a way that Carroll County is never the same because they see Jesus in us. It's in his matchless name I pray. Amen.